see you all here this afternoon. Great to see you all. And if you're a visitor, it's really good to have you with us. Uh, that song that we've just sung, actually, uh, we sang at Regent the night that Claire and I were commended into full-time Christian work 26 years ago, whatever it was. That was our commending, our commissioning night as we went into full-time Christian work. And that was one of the songs that we sung. I haven't sung it since, actually, uh, but that was one of the songs that we, sung that we sang that night. So that's, uh, thanks for that, Stuart. I thought you might like to see some pictures of how the building work is progressing. So I've got some pictures that are going to come up for you. It started a week past Tuesday, and they've cleared all of the land behind the building and stripped all the ground off the top and taken it right back. And then you see the next picture there. They've then dug down uh, a further level and exposed some drains that we didn't know were there. Uh, so that's just a little bit of a complication. It's not a problem, but it does mean they need to be rerouted. And that was on a really cold day this week. Poor guys were absolutely freezing. I think that was uh, maybe Wednesday or Thursday. And just, just t- t- uh, scraping back and finishing, removing the top layer. Uh, and then that's the last bit that they did on uh, Thursday and Friday. The arrow that's pointing there that you can see, that's pointing to where uh, the footings were going to be going, or the sort of concrete underpinning for the four pillars. There's going to be four pillars that will support the side wall, or the back wall as it will be, uh, of the uh, new auditorium. And under each pillar, they need to put a whole lot of concrete because the current foundations aren't uh, deep enough. So they've dug, you can see four holes that they've dug there, and there's a blue line. That's where the pillars are going to go. There's kind of spaced out along that wall, and they're going to underfill that with a load of concrete. So that's happening Tuesday. And then the rest of this week, they're going to be digging out the actual um, sort of trench for the foundations and laying the concrete, and it'll be a massive slab. So hopefully by next Sunday, we'll have maybe have some pictures we can send around. That will no longer be earth, it will be concrete. That's the plan, God willing. So you can pray for that. Now, before Claire and I and the family moved back to Newcastle in 2007, we had been uh, working as part of a church planting team in Hereford for eight years, having been commanded from here, as I said, uh, or commanded from Regent. And we used to rent, when we were in Hereford, we didn't have a, we didn't have a church building. So we used to rent the uh, local school. And before that, we used to rent uh, a community center. And if you think having uh, these big pillars was a problem, we had a community center with a pillar right in the middle. And the kids would always run into it and smack into it. There was some kind of rugby sort of um, padding around it to stop you hurting yourself too much. And if you were sat there, you couldn't quite see. So it was kind of hard going. But and we used to rent that, and then we rented a school. And for the first few years, I had a tiny office. We obviously didn't have a church building. I had a tiny office in what was our third bedroom, which was really just a, a, a tiny box room. And then, really, it, it wasn't feasible any longer to use that. And Daniel had come along. We already had Naomi. So we decided to build an office on the back of our house. Uh, the problem was that I knew absolutely nothing about construction. I don't know anything about construction. I don't know how to build an office. Um, I, there was no way I could build an office without some serious, serious and professional help. And, and fortunately, fortunately for me, that help came in the person of a guy called Adrian, who was a member of our church there in Hereford, but he also owned his own construction company. He was a great guy. Every church should have a builder, a plumber, a plasterer. If you're not one of, one of those trades, hurry up and get one because it's really helpful. And he didn't do it for me. I still actually did most of the actual work, most of the laboring. What he provided was the technical know-how and the tools, and he would tell me what to do. He did do some of the stuff I couldn't do, but I did actually do most of the, the actual work. And so pretty much every Saturday morning, he would work all week as normal, and then he would give up his Saturdays every Saturday for almost a year to help me do this. And every Saturday morning, he would come, and I would dig or mix and pour concrete or lay bricks. I actually built a whole wall, Toby. You'd be impressed. And it does look pretty. I've got a photograph of it somewhere. It is straight, I I promise you. 
And uh, he would oversee what I was doing, and he would teach me how to do it, and we would work together. And he was doing all the bits that I couldn't do, which was quite a lot of stuff, obviously. Adrian was brilliant. He would give up so much of his time, of his own spare time, to help me. And obviously his wife and kids gave up that and sacrificed that too. There was just loads of jobs that I couldn't do, or certainly couldn't do, without him uh, being there to give me that input. But it was a genuine partnership of working together. I was his fellow worker as we built the office. I labored for him as he showed me what to do. And it struck me this week that it's a little bit like that with us and God when it comes to us being obedient to the great commission to go and tell people the good news about Jesus. Like my friend Adrian, God could obviously do this all on his own. He doesn't need any of our help. God is more than capable of just reaching out to everybody on his own. He doesn't need us. He could just, if he wanted to, I guess, appear in the living room of every single human being on the planet or or, or wherever they are and speak to them. He could do that. He's God. But in the way he has chosen in his wisdom to do that, that's not how he's done it. And instead, he's chosen to involve ordinary people like you and me to be working in his great building of the church, building the church up. Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church, says Jesus. Jesus is building his church right now. And of course, the church isn't a physical building. And we've proved that, haven't we? We are are the local church in in Regent, uh, but we're here. We're in a different building. This is not a church. This is just a building we're meeting in. The church is all those who throughout history have put their faith and trust in Jesus. The church is the people. And Jesus is building his church. And he's doing that all the time. Every day, thousands of people across this planet put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he could do that all on his own. He certainly doesn't need us, and yet he chooses to involve us so that we get to play a part in building the church. What an amazing honor that God chooses to use people like you and me to to do his work right across this planet. The Bible describes believers in Jesus as being God's fellow workers, just like I was Adrian's fellow worker. And as Paul writes separately in another part of the Bible, as he writes to the believers in Corinth, he says this, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And Paul uses this term, fellow worker, again. He uses the picture of the believers in Corinth as being like a field that Paul and his team had sown spiritual seeds in that had then sprung up and produced a good crop. In other words, they had preached the good news about Jesus to them, and then just like spiritual seeds, that their words had fallen into the ground, which was their lives, and then God had enabled that seed to spring up and bear fruit. And that fruit that they bore was the fact that their their lives were saved. They surrendered their lives to Jesus. And as a result of that, the church there in Corinth, in what is now modern-day Greece, was established. And he also uses the picture of them being like a building that God was constructing, And in both pictures, Paul sees himself and his team as God's fellow workers. Paul and his team had preached to them in the past, and they'd accepted their message about Jesus, and they'd been saved, and they'd become part of that church. They'd built that church, had been built up. Paul and his team were God's fellow workers. And and using the picture of a field and of crops, Paul says this, I planted the seed, Apollos, that was another worker in his team, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Despite having no need of help from anybody, God chooses to include and involve us, you and me, in taking the gospel message, the good news about Jesus, to people all over this planet. And he can do it on his own. He definitely doesn't need any of us. And yet he's appointed us as his fellow workers. 
You and I are God's, if we've trusted in Jesus, we are God's fellow workers. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that phenomenal? That God would actually use, would choose you, would choose me to work in partnership with him. Our task is to tell people the good news, to sow the seed, if you like, using that kind of picture. And his task is to bring that seed alive in people's hearts. As we preach, God brings that seed to life and people trust in him. My friend Adrian and I work together, me the complete amateur with zero construction experience or ability, and he the experienced builder. And with his expert guidance and input and my willingness to work hard, we were able to build an office. And it's just like that with us and God. If we're willing to work hard and do whatever we can do, we can tell other people about Jesus, and then he will do what we can't do, which is save them. Jesus has appointed us and he's commissioned us to go into the whole world with the good news that people can be forgiven, they can have a relationship with God, they can have their sins removed. That's the good news, that's the task that he's given us to do, but we don't have to do that on our own. And I'm so glad that that's the case. Jesus says this in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has commissioned us and he sent us out, but he's also promised to be with us. We're not doing this on our own. And that's really good because it's scary, isn't it? Going out and telling other people about Jesus can be a really scary and intimidating thing to do. But not only have we been empowered to do this by the King of Kings himself, he's actually with us as we do it. He's given us the authority and he's actually with us. He's not walking alongside us in person. Instead, he's he's with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the moment that we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us as his believers. When I was laboring alongside my friend Adrian, he often left me. He'd go off to the the builder's merchants or do some other jobs, and he would leave me carrying on certain tasks. And to be honest, it was a little bit scary because I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing, and I was worried I'd get it wrong. Then he'd come back, and sometimes he had to put put it right, and sometimes kind of correct what I was doing. Mostly it was okay. But, you know, although Jesus has left us and returned to heaven, unlike my friend Adrian, he's not left us on our own to work for him because he sent us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives in every, inside every single believer, every single person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Paul writes these words, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has put his spirit in the heart of every single person who trusts in him. So if you trusted in Jesus this morning, this afternoon, then the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he empowers you. In fact, according to Paul, if you don't have the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in you, then Jesus isn't your savior. You can't have one without the other, he says. Look at what he says. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So if you have trusted in Christ, then his Spirit lives in you. If you haven't trusted in him, then he doesn't. It's as simple as that. If you trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that comes and lives in every single believer the moment they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then he empowers them. He empowers us to serve him and be God's fellow workers, his fellow laborers working in the harvest field so that other people can hear about Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit lives in every believer and empowers us, gives us the power and the ability to serve God and to do things that otherwise we wouldn't do or couldn't do on our own. Jesus said these words to, the first, to his first disciples, and these words are true for every single believer who subsequently puts their faith and trust in Jesus. He says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus imagined, was envisaging Newcastle when he said that, to the very ends of the earth. He was in Jerusalem when he said that. And we are fulfilling that commission right now. So we're not working for God on our own. Yes, Jesus has returned to heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to come and live in and empower everybody who believes in him. So it's not down to how good we are at telling people about Jesus. It's not down to how clever we are. It's not about how well we've rehearsed our lines and kind of got our killer arguments. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. We do the laboring, we plant the spiritual seeds, and yes, we want to try and get our arguments cogent and and, and coherent, and we want to make sure we know what we're talking about, and we want to do our best for sure, but it's not about whether or not we do our best. It's not about how clever we are or how much we've rehearsed our arguments or, or how smart we are. It's not about that, and I'm so glad it's not, because I would be in a mess for a start. It's not about that. We do the laboring, we plant the spiritual seeds, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables those seeds to spring into life so that people then give their lives to Jesus. So we're not on our own. As we go out into school or in uni or in, or in a workplace or with our family or in our neighborhood, as we, as we try and in our kind of feeble attempts uh, to, to try and share the good news of Jesus with people, we're not doing that on our own. It's not all down to us And in fact, unless the Holy Spirit is actually at work and makes the seeds that we plant in people's hearts and lives grow, then our work will be powerless. We can preach all we like, we can argue till the cows come, and we can share the gospel as long as we want. Unless the Holy Spirit's at work, our words will be empty and powerless. And that's important for two reasons. Firstly, it takes the pressure off us, because we know that it's not about how clever we are, it's not about how good we are about sharing the good news. It's not down to my skill or ability. And for, my, for, for all of us, that's a huge pressure off our shoulders, or it should be. I, I, you know, I, I've heard and probably delivered some terrible preaching, and, and people have given their lives to Jesus at the end of the service. But I've also heard some brilliant preaching, and nobody's responded. It's not down to how clever the message is or how good we are at talking to people about Jesus. There's been times when I have made a terrible job of explaining the gospel to people, and yet they still put their faith and trust in Jesus. And there equally been times when I thought, I I really nailed that, I really got that down, and then nothing, no response whatsoever. It doesn't work in a human sense. It's the Holy Spirit that needs to be at work. But secondly, it just demonstrates how much, therefore, we need to pray, doesn't it? Because we're involved, well, what we're involved with is a spiritual battle. This isn't down to our human abilities. It's down to the work of the Holy Spirit. And and, and God acts when his people humble themselves and pray. We see that throughout the Bible. We see that throughout church history. When God's people humble themselves and pray, then God moves. Now, prayer, God isn't a slot machine. We We can't control God. Prayer, there's much mystery to prayer. But what we can say is that God moves when his people pray. So we need to pray. We need to pray for those who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
to be convicted of their sin, to have that real sense that we can't do on our own, we can't do it, we can't produce it. So that sense of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings in a person's heart, that they know that there's something wrong in their life, they just know that they need to get rid of their sin, they need to, they need to be right with God. That's not something we can manufacture or whip up or, or kind of create, that's only something the Holy Spirit can do. We need to pray that they'll be moved by him to surrender to God. Because unless the Holy Spirit is at work, then our efforts will be powerless. And the, the, the Holy Spirit moves when in humility and desperation we cry out to God in prayer. And that's why we need to go to prayer meetings at church. We need to be praying for the efforts and, the, and, the, and, and all the different things that we're trying to do. The hub yesterday or Christianity Explored or Friday Frenzy or FX. We need to be there as a church meeting to pray for these things. Because unless people pray, God rarely moves. God moves when people pray. We need to be at prayer. The Bible tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age is Satan. And the only person that can reverse the effects of Satan is the one true God. So we need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of people who are spiritually blind. Everybody around us is spiritually blind. And the only way that they will be able to see with their, their, their hearts or their minds and really understand and connect is if their eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. And the one thing that we can do to play a part in that process is to pray and to ask God to open people's eyes and to get on our knees and keep coming before God again and again in prayer, asking that God would convict our friend at school or our friend at work or our family member, whatever it might be. And the great thing is that he often does. And suddenly people are convicted of their sin and they suddenly grasp that they desperately need a savior and that they need to trust in Jesus. And it's wonderful when that happens, when you suddenly see the light bulb go on and suddenly somebody realizes that they need a savior and they bow down and they worship him as God. It's wonderful when that happens. It's God working hand in hand with, his, with us, his fellow workers, as we play our part and as he does the things, he does the work that we can't do. There's some great examples in the book of Acts of God being at work in some people's lives. Even before anybody had prayed for them, even before anybody had, had spoken to them about Jesus, we see God at work in their lives. Sometimes God is at, is at work in people's lives and he then leads us to them so that we can play our part in leading that person to faith in Christ. And that might involve us sharing our testimony. Somebody uh, you know, at work tomorrow says, hey, you know, tell me what you were doing at church on Sunday. And, and, and tell me why you believe that. And suddenly God has, God has moved that person to ask us questions and suddenly we have an opportunity to share the gospel. It might involve us giving somebody a Bible or explaining the gospel to them. I remember when Claire and I were in Hereford working and we were going door to door, we were knocking and we were uh, knocking on doors and inviting people to a special service, special outreach service that we had on. And we'd been going all afternoon, and most people don't really want to know, and, and we were just really fed up and discouraged. Most people were just, no, thank you, shut the door, and, and so on. But we just had this sense that we should just carry on for a little bit longer. We did one more house, and then we knocked on this lady called Diane's door. And Diane opened the door, and cut a long story short, she basically said this, I asked God that if he was real, he would send somebody to help me find out about him, and here you are. I, I, that is what she said. And to cut a long story short, Diane then started attending church, she trusted in Jesus, and she got baptized. She's sadly with the Lord now. For her, it's not sadness, it's, she's great, she's up with the Lord, but she uh, died of cancer a few years ago. 
But what an amazing experience, what an amazing thing. And we were just kind of fed up. We'd been knocking doors all afternoon. We'd been doing it for weeks and weeks and just kind of plowing on and plowing on. And then Diane opens the door and says, I prayed that God would send someone. And, he, and there we were. Fantastic. And, and we see this kind of thing in the book of Acts in several places. In Acts 8, the Holy Spirit told Philip to go down to the main road that runs from Jerusalem down into Egypt. And let's, let's read what happened. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 26 to 38. So if you've got a Bible handy, if you want to uh, open it and, and look at it. If you haven't, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it to you. So Acts chapter 8, we're going to read verse 26 to 38. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a lamb, sorry, led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And then we see the same kind of thing happens in uh, Acts chapter 10, where the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go and see a Roman centurion, a guy called Cornelius, whose heart God was at work in. And Peter was really, really reluctant to go at first. I don't know if you've ever been like that, where you've kind of sensed God is prompting you to go and talk to somebody, and you think, oh, I don't really want to do this, I'm tired, or this person's a bit difficult or awkward, not me, just, just send somebody else. And Peter was a little bit like that. For him, it was a kind of racist thing. He was a Jew, and this guy was a Gentile, and he didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. And Peter needed his eyes opening and his kind of... Uh, uh, mindset refreshing by God to do this. But when Peter did go and see him and then told him all about Jesus, not only did Cornelius get saved, so did everybody else that was in the house listening. It's another brilliant example of God doing his work and of us, in this case, Peter, doing the work that God wants us to do for him as his fellow laborers. I had a similar situation in uh, Hereford when we were living there. I had a dream one night that my boss, when I was in customs, was saying that he couldn't get any peace in life. And I woke up with this really vivid thing where this guy was saying, I can't get any peace. And it really stuck with me. I can still remember it now. And a few days later, I was just kind of praying it through. What should I do? We had an elders meeting in this office that I'd built, by the way. And there we were in the office, proof that it did stand up and it was functioning. And we were sat in the office having an elders meeting, and I was sharing with the other elders what I, the dream and what do they think I should do. And there on my shelf was a little track, Steps to Peace with God by Billy Graham. And Marty, my co-worker, said, well, there's your answer, isn't it? Send him that in the post. So I decided I would do that, and I, wrote, uh, I, I sent this little leaflet to my boss who, who lived up here, and I wrote him a covering letter. And so I, as I wrote to him, I was at pains to explain that I didn't normally have dreams about him. 
So I didn't want him to panic and, and think I was kind of weird. But that I had dreamt that he was searching for, for peace. And he knew I was a Christian. We'd worked together. He trained me. So he knew my, my faith and, and, and so on. He knew all about that. And so I, I wrote to him in this letter and said, this is the dream I had. And please, would you read the track that I've, that I've enclosed for you? And he wrote back and he assured me, I was kind of waiting with bated breath what would happen. He, he wrote back and he assured me that he didn't think I was crazy. He wasn't spooked by the fact that I had a dream about him. And he would read the leaflet I'd sent him and that we, we should meet up next time I was up here in Newcastle, which we did. Now, he's still not a believer in Jesus as far as I know. The last time I saw him was a few years ago in Tesco. But all I can do is leave him with God and pray that having played my part in following what I do believe was the prompting of the Holy Spirit and, and stepping out and being obedient to doing that and, and, and writing to him that God will one day do the rest and that one day my old boss will maybe turn up at Regent and, and tell me that he's been saved, that finally he's come to faith in Christ. Or maybe when I finally go to be with Jesus, I'll meet my old boss there and, and he'll tell me that the reason he's there is because of the letter and the tract I sent him. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I just have to leave that with God. And trust that he's doing something in his life. Another great example of God being at work in people's lives as believers share the gospel with them is found in Acts 16. So if you, again, just flip over a few pages, Acts 16 and verses uh, 6 to 15. This is what we read. So Acts chapter 16, I'm going to read uh, verse 6 to 15. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, this is modern-day Turkey, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Paul and his missionary team were busy trying to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus, all over what is now modern-day Turkey. But then the Holy Spirit prevented them from going where they planned to go. And they must have been wondering, well, we're being obedient to the Great Commission, but for some reason the Holy Spirit is preventing us. We don't know what that looked like. We don't know exactly how that happened. But Luke says that that's what did. And then that night, Paul has this vision of this man from Macedonia, which was over the, the Aegean Sea, over in what is now modern-day Greece, calling Paul and his team to come and preach the gospel to them. And so Paul and his team set off the next day, sailed to Philippi in, in, in modern-day Greece, and this was the first time that the gospel had been preached in what we would now call Europe. And as he went to the riverside to the preach to the Jews, who he thought would be meeting there to pray, the Jewish ladies, there's a lady called Lydia listening to what he'd said. And verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And then she went on to get baptized to demonstrate her new faith in Jesus. And this is another brilliant example of God working hand in hand with his people. Paul and his team were trying to evangelize a region of Turkey called Bithynia, but, but God had other plans for them. 
The Holy Spirit prevented them from doing that and instead led Paul and his team to Philippi so that Paul could start preaching there instead. And as he preached to this crowd of people about Jesus, a lady called Lydia, in whose heart God had already been working, gave her life to Jesus. But it wasn't Paul's preaching, as amazing as I'm sure it was, it wasn't Paul's preaching that convinced Lydia. Luke says that it was the Lord who opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Paul preached, and I'm sure he'd rehearsed his lines and had thought about what he was going to say and made sure he'd kind of got it all ready. But it was the Holy Spirit that opened her heart. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to be active telling others about Jesus and then leave the rest to him. I'm sure Paul preached really well and I'm sure he rehearsed and planned what he was going to say, but it wasn't his preaching skill that saved Lydia. It was because the Lord opened her heart. And that's why it's really important that we stay close to God and keep listening to what he's saying to us, to see who he's leading us to. Paul says this, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The new life that we have in Jesus comes through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. But it's more than plausible for us not to be living how the Holy Spirit wants us to live or not to be listening to what he's saying to us. And that's especially true if we've got unconfessed sin in our lives. Yes, the spiritual life that we have now is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're no longer spiritually dead in our sins. We're alive in Christ, and that's because of the Holy Spirit's presence. But we also need to keep in step with Him, with the Holy Spirit. We need to walk at the same pace that the Holy Spirit's walking and go where He leads us. It's about staying close to God at all times. And of course, when we sin and when we're not living as we should do, we put a bit of a barrier between us and the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning and by failing then to confess any sins that we commit. Paul says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, God will never take the Holy Spirit away from us, but we can certainly grieve him and not be in step with him. So as soon as we're aware of any sin in our life, we need to confess it and turn away from it so that we stay close to God, keep short accounts with God. Because when we do that, we're much more likely to know where he's leading us, to be more sensitive to his voice and to his leading and his guiding. So that when it comes to sharing the good news, we've got a much better sense of who he's leading us to do that with. Whose heart is he at work in? So if we want the Holy Spirit to lead us to those he's at work in, we need to keep in step with him. We need to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. But whilst the Holy Spirit may lead us to someone specific in a supernatural way, where we perhaps maybe have a dream about them, uh, you know, as I did about my job, uh, about my boss, that's actually probably fairly rare and quite unique, I guess. God doesn't want us to wait until he specifically tells us about a particular person, because the reality is he's already told us to tell everybody. He says, go into all the world and tell everybody. So we don't need to wait for a dream or a kind of prompting. We just need to get on with the job. And we won't normally know whose heart God is at work in until they get saved. Our job is just to be as active and as we can in spreading the gospel. If a farmer wants a good crop, then he needs to sow as many seeds as possible. And it's the same with the gospel. The more people we tell, the more people are likely to be saved. And one thing's for sure is that if we don't tell anyone, then nobody will be saved. We have to play our part. That's how God has set things up. Paul said these words when he was writing to Timothy, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The elect, as the Bible calls them here, are those that God chooses to have mercy on so that they reach out to him in faith and trust in Jesus. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are part of God's elect. You're part of the elect. 
But we don't know who the elect are or who are they to be. And we'll only know once they're saved. Lydia was partly the elect, but Paul didn't know that until the Lord opened her heart to respond to his message. And some people will respond to what we say, and some won't. And we don't know who will, and we don't know who, who won't. And so like Paul, we need to be willing to endure hardships so that the elect can hear about Jesus and put their faith and trust in him. So we don't know whose heart God is at work in. We just need to keep on spreading the good news, keep playing our part, and leave the rest up to him. God does the saving, but he set things up in such a way that it requires us to do the telling and the sharing and the preaching and so on. We're God's fellow workers. We share the gospel and he opens people's hearts to receive what we're saying. It's an amazing partnership. We're not worthy of it, that God would actually use us and work with us. Yet he's chosen to call us his fellow workers, his fellow laborers. We do the laboring and God does the saving. We share the gospel and the Holy Spirit opens the spiritual eyes of people, the hearts of people to receive that message so that they can see and believe the truth and receive it. So who will we tell? Who will we go to with this good news about Jesus, with this message of eternal life? Who will we tell? Who can we invite to Christianity Explored or to other events that we run at Regent? Who has God put us next to at work or at school or at uni or at the school gate or in our street or in our family? Who has God placed in our lives? Where is he calling us to go so that we can tell people about him? For some people, that will mean going all the way to India. As we, uh, If you were at the prayer meeting this morning, we watched a video from Martha and just receiving an update from her. And, and maybe God is speaking to somebody here this afternoon or more than one person prompting you and calling you and preparing you to go overseas or to leave this part of the country and go to another part of the country as Claire and I did. Or maybe, perhaps more likely for most of us, it's just about crossing the room at work or crossing the street and knocking on the door and saying, hey, do you fancy going out for a drink tonight? And when we go out for a drink, hey, do you fancy coming to Christianity Explored with me? Or would you fancy a coffee this week? I'd like to talk to you about something. And maybe just giving them a, a, a leaflet or a, or a John's Gospel or a Bible. Who is God calling you to go to? Who is God calling me to go to? The fact is he's definitely calling us to go. We don't know exactly who to, and sometimes he'll be specific, and generally he won't. So we just need to get on and be active and be busy doing this. Let's take a moment to stop and reflect and just think about what we've, what we've said this afternoon. That we're God's fellow workers. He calls us to go. should be the exception if we stay. Let's bow our heads and just for a few moments reflect. Maybe God's put somebody on your heart right now. Maybe God's just kind of brought a face to your mind uh, or a situation. Can I encourage you to be bold and step out and respond to God's prompting in the moment that we're in right now? Father, thank you for bringing people into our lives that shared the good news with us, whether that was our parents or a Sunday school teacher or a friend at school or at work. Thank you for putting people in our lives 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our hearts to be able to respond to the message that we heard from others. Thank you for your mercy and your grace to us, Lord. Help us, we pray, to now be bold and to repeat that process and go and share the good news with others. Help us to persist and keep on doing this. And Father, help us to keep praying that you would move in power. We pray for those, Lord, that you've put in our lives. We pray that even this week, Lord, many of us would have opportunities to share the, good, the gospel message with people. We pray that not just opportunities, but then that people would, that you would open the hearts of many through the work of this church. We pray for Christianity Explored in a few weeks' time, and we just pray, Lord, we thank you for those who've already signed up, and we pray that many more people will sign up, and that many more people will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, help us to be faithful to the call, to the gospel call, to the Great Commission. Empower us, strengthen us, use us, we pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.